It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hey everyone, welcome back to Seeking Witchcraft. It's me, your host, Ashley, and today I have on a special guest, Dr. Amy Hale. Welcome, Amy. Hello, Ashley. I'm so happy to be here hanging out with you today. Hello, hello. Would you like to introduce yourself to both listeners and our topic for today as well? Sure, sure. It's it's one of my favorite topics, but I am Dr. Amy Hale. I am living in the beautiful city of Atlanta, Georgia. I am a folklorist. I have a PhD in folklore from UCLA. I'm also an anthropologist. I write about a number of things that are kind of interestingly intersected. So mostly I write about women, art, culture, the occult, and Cornwall in various combinations. And so today, Ashley and I are going to have a fun chat about the the kind of history and position of women in the occult. I'm super excited to talk about this. And with your background and your education and everything, I mean, I, I think this is going to be a really cool topic. I'm super excited to hear what we're going to dive into today. Me too. The first thing that I want to do specifically for your listeners who are mostly primarily, I would assume, interested in what we consider to be witchcraft, modern and historical witchcraft traditions. I want to talk a little bit about how we understand and define the occult, because there may be some people who are interested in witchcraft or who identify themselves as witches who don't really feel any kind of attachment to the phrase occult or occultism. There's kind of a popular understanding or belief that witchcraft is low magic or traditional magic and that the occult is high magic. It might sometimes be associated with Abrahamic or Jewish or Islamic or Christian traditions. And those things are are also very true. But for our purposes today and in general, I think that it's important that we look at witchcraft, particularly initiatory witchcraft, as being a subset of the magical religions and practices that particularly in the modern era are called the occult. Initiatory witchcraft has a lot in common with other occult traditions and things like, for example, casting circles. Uh, That's something that a lot of people do. Not all occultists do that, but a lot of them do. Working with, with spirits, angels, deities. So doing spell work practicing other forms of magic. This is something that that we all have in common. I think one of the reasons that witchcraft in particular has kind of been sidelined in our discussions of the occult, and by the way, occult just means hidden or secret. I think one of the reasons that that witchcraft has been sidelined in our discussions of the occult, and that includes academic discussions, is because it is predominantly associated with women historically. So, you know, there's this idea, and people have even said this to me, that that magicians and sorcerers are men and witches are women. And I'm like, oh, 
just yeah. <laughs> no, just everywhere, no. Yeah. But that's still a very popular understanding. And of course, women are magicians, and of course, men are witches as well. That's true today, and it was true historically. So, given that, there uh, the the position of women in the occult has has been has been really very very sidelined. Um, there have been, of course, magicians and and women magicians and uh, cunning cunning women as well as cunning men. There have been women astrologers. There have been women alchemists. We don't know a whole lot about them historically, but they absolutely did exist certainly within 20th century and modern occultism there have been lots of women although their profiles haven't always been as as uh, as strong or as well known as a lot of the men of course you know everybody knows about Aleister Crowley and Kenneth Grant you know these are some of the names that pop up but of course there's also Dion Fortune who was absolutely instrumental in 20th century witch, uh, witchcraft history as well as wider wider occult history. So there are women in the occult, but there are a whole bunch of reasons why we don't know about them and why their profile hasn't been as high. I think right now there's actually a huge hunger to know more about those women and, and what they were doing and what their, their contributions were. So if somebody were to want to get kind of dive into that history, where's a good starting point? You know, that's a really great question because historically, now I suppose I should have said in my introduction that I I edited a book that came out in 2022, a it's an academic collection called Women in Western Esotericism and it was edited by me and had a number of other contributions. I also did a biography of the surrealist and occultist Ethel Colquhoun. So because of these things, I'm you know a little bit familiar with where do we go when we want to look at histories of women. And as far as I know, there has not a single one book that will give you that history. So it's almost like you kind of have to know a bit of history to even know where to go and where to look historically. Yes, yeah, so there, there are things out there for people who either already know where to start or who have done maybe academic research on that. But I think that for a, for a popular, uh, for, you know, a popular treatment, this is something that's, that's really, really missing. One area that's been covered quite a bit recently and something that I, I've contributed to myself uh, is is the role of women who are who have been practicing magic who are involved in art, and I think that that that's what. So if you look at women and the occult in art, that's a place where you actually find a lot of current interest. But there's still so many women that we don't know about, and we're just starting to learn about. Now, when you say women in art, are you talking about the artists themselves, or depictions of women in the occult, or Yes, women artists. Oh, okay. Uh, in fact, in fact, so magical art and occult art is something that is a really hot topic right now. Has been for probably it's been increasing in interest in the past decade, and we're starting to see more interest in women who have been occult artists 
And one of the reasons is, is because when we learn more about women's role in art history, ideas of magic and the occult are often intertwined with that and often intersect with that. So for instance, some of the earliest abstract artists we're now finding in the modern age weren't actually men, but they were women and they were women who were involved in spiritualism. And they were, now I know that probably a lot of people who are involved and are involved in in spiritualist communities would not see what they do as occult uh, or esoteric, but, but, you know, we're dealing with, with entities from the beyond. And um, yeah, let's, let's actually define spiritualism a minute. Spiritualism is a tradition uh, that, and set of practices that emerged from the 19th century started in the United States and which um, were, it was very, very popular in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, It was mostly done within a Christian framework, but not entirely. And it involved mediumship and contacting the dead, contacting dead spirits, letting spirits speak through the medium. And from this emerged actually a really interesting set of artistic traditions. Actually, uh, another really important and interesting book came to mind that is a great starting place. It's really accessible that talks about the history of women in the occult. And that is Mary Kay Greer's Women of the Golden Dawn. And some of you may know Mary Kay Greer as a a tarot reader and tarot specialist. But she did Women of the Golden Dawn quite some time ago, and it was really a very groundbreaking book. So for those of you who don't know, the Golden Dawn was an exceptionally important and influential occult order in the late 19th and early 20th century. It spanned from 1888 to uh, about 1901. After that kind of broke down and there were lots of splinter groups, but it was, it was really very influential. A lot of important people at the time joined. It was British based. And there were a couple of things that were really groundbreaking about it. One is that it was one of the first times that a teachable magic curriculum was assembled. So if you join the Golden Dawn, you were going to learn about the hermetic magic tradition. You were going to learn Kabbalah. You were going to learn astrology. You were going to learn ritual practices. And it was a systematic curriculum that was taught. The other thing that was really important about the Golden Dawn was that women were members on an equal level to men. Women were initiated, women took ritual roles, women were leaders of the order. And prior to that, really one of the only organizations where you would be doing any kind of high-level ritual work and ceremonial work was actually Freemasonry, which in most places was exclusive to men. And women were, they're excluded in the U.S. and in the U.K., but they're, uh, you can be a Mason in France. Women can't. I know there's also the female equivalent that they have, the um, Eastern Star. Oh, yes. Yeah, Eastern Star, or there's Job's Daughters for like the youth group version of that. I think there might be another age-related one for women, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, there's, my mom is a rainbow girl. 
because her yep. dad was uh, was a mason and a shriner. So she was a rainbow girl. And I think rainbow girls still exist. That, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, yeah. And I know there are college age groups, but I know of ones for men, like the Acacia Society. But I know that's for young men, probably yeah. not young women. But there, there is a demole or demole. I'm, oh, not, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not totally yeah. sure how to pronounce it, but yeah. I knew somebody when I was yeah. in high school I was friends with who was in that. That's how I found out about all of that. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, the history of women in masonry is actually, I think, another part of the story of women in the occult because I, I I think that the influence of Freemasonry on modern occult culture, on modern witchcraft, it really can't be overstated. It was it was really important. It was a place where people got together, they did ritual, and a lot of the ritual structures of initiatory witchcraft were inspired by Freemasonry. And that was also very true of the Golden Dawn. You can do Golden Dawn magic in a Freemasonic lodge. It kind of lines up. I know because I've done it. It was a pretty cool thing to do. Um, But women were accepted on an equal level to men in the Golden Dawn. And that was huge. You know, they and part of the ritual culture and the, the values of the Golden Dawn was that you will not refuse admission to women because it was understood that women and men are, I mean, it was obviously very binary, very binary time um, were seen as, as it was important that everybody was seen as uh, as a magical partner together. And so the, the, it, it, within the, the movements of the 20th century in particular, the Golden Dawn was really important. And I would, I would recommend Mary Greer's, uh, Mary Greer's book. She profiles uh, Florence Farr, who was an incredibly important occultist in the 19th and early 20th century. She was also an actor. She worked with W.B. Yeats. She was an incredible ritualist. The wife of one of the founders of the Golden Dawn, Mina Mathers, was a visual artist. Uh, she probably was one of the people who helped to pioneer the color scheme of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. Annie Horneman, she was very important in managing the management of the Golden Dawn at the time. And she was a philanthropist and theater pioneer. She helped found the National Theater of Ireland and was kind of one of, of Yeats' patrons. So they had some really, really high-profile women who were involved in the Golden Dawn. So that would be definitely a place for, for people to check out. Another thing that I just kind of wanted to throw in there, because I think it's interesting and important, is that for a lot of women who were involved in the occult early on, there was this kind of a, a synergy between what they were seeing as their their occult practices and their spiritual practices and also their political lives and they uh, socially political um, progressive politics so they saw the uplifting of society as being a very important part of what they were doing magically as well so what are your thoughts on when because i see people say this online quite often about how witchcraft is political i tend to be of the belief that Everything is inherently political. There is, I think, a misunderstanding of what political means. There's kind of political in terms of 
our how we vote and our our uh, you know kind of public expressions of what we might consider our politics. But I think that everything you do and every choice that you make reflects your values. And so your witchcraft is going to reflect your values. Now, I don't think that all witches have the same politics. That's absolutely not true. That's, yep, but yep. I think whatever, <laughs> whatever your values are, if you are, if you have an active and committed spiritual life, then then it's, it should come out in the ballot box and also the choices that you make every day. So pivoting a bit to something that we talked about a little earlier today, and it was actually something that you and I had spoke about before we recorded this episode and we were just chatting about the topic, was this discussion on how women couldn't have their name on a lot of things, uh, mm. you know, way back when. And that's not necessarily news to hear. You know, that's how history was, unfortunately. And I remember asking you, you know, how do you think that affected things that got published, such as grimoires? Women couldn't have their names on things. If you're looking at early books or texts that were published, it was mostly men. Right. And that's that's an excellent point. And it's not so not only were women frequently publishing under pseudonyms, but the, the role of women in art is another really great way to look at some of this is that some of these early women artists like Hilma F. Clint, um, uh, Georgiana Houghton. So Georgiana Houghton, who was uh, an artist, she was the spiritualist artist that I'd mentioned earlier. She didn't want to take credit for her work at all. She believed that it came from, she was either channeling great artists or other spirits, and she didn't want to take credit. And I think there were probably two reasons for that. One was because there was a social sanction against women doing that kind of work and also probably just would not have been comfortable for her to do so. So we have a whole bunch of women doing all sorts of things where they're either their names were not attached, you know, or maybe somebody else's name was attached or in the case of publishing where they were publishing in these places where they were, they were publishing basically in ephemera like monthly magazines. A really great example of this is Prediction Magazine in the UK, which was a really important publication for for a lot of people who were interested in mid-century witchcraft, the occult, astrology. One thing that's super interesting about it was, and we're talking like from, you know, the thirties or forties, and I think it's still going today. It really shows what the popular interest in these subjects was. It was huge. You know, Dion Fortune, Doreen Valiente, all published in, in prediction. But one of the things that happens is, you know, prediction. I mean, think about something like if, if any of your listeners are even old enough to think about something like Reader's Digest, right? Or People Magazine. You write something for that and then it's gone. And Prediction was kind of the same thing. So there were a lot of women who were writing for Prediction Magazine. Maybe they were getting money for it, but it wasn't like they were writing the big magic book. So one of the most interesting and important female occultists of the mid 20th century was this woman called Madeline Montalban. And Julia Phillips did a really great book on her. She's really rescued Madeline Montalban from history because she had her own magical order. She did really interesting things. It was completely unique working with, with angels and spirits 
and she had a whole different take and reading on Lucifer. And the Order of the Morning Star, which was her order, it still exists today. She was known, she was certainly known in the occult scene in London in the 50s and 60s, but because she didn't write the big books, she was almost forgotten about in history, even though people have a memory of her and she exists in the record. So there are all these different ways that women throughout history have not been able to leave their mark, even though we know that they were there. Like for instance, uh, with grimoires is kind of an, an interesting thing. They're, they're really, they're interesting compilations of texts, a lot of the popular grimoires that were used by, by cunning folk. So that maybe a lot of them were, were handwritten kind of uh, like we might consider a book of shadows today. They were compiled from different sources. Maybe they had some books on them or saw some books and they would write them down in their notebooks. We know that women had these. We know that women possessed them and used them, but we don't have a whole bunch of names attached to them. I'm not sure to the degree. I'm not a grimoire specialist, so I'm not sure. I know that grimoire specialists obviously know probably who wrote what, but we just, women were not in the position of power and authority in the ways that say some of the, the earlier um, monks or scribes would have been who were writing down some of these texts and passing them on in, in, in a literate culture. And so we, even though we know that women were using them, we don't necessarily have their records of how they were using them. So I just finished uh, Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic by El- Eliphas. Is it Eliphas or Elite? Oh, yeah. Eliphas uh, Levi? Yeah. Eliphas, El- uh, yes. Eliphas Levi. Yes, yes. Uh, it took me an entire year to read that book because of how dense it is. And, um, you know, the way it, it's a magical text, I guess you can call it, or it's, it's a book talking about magic. And I got to say, the way that he refers to women in this book is uh, very incel for lack of a better term <laughs> truthfully the the way he portrays women views women says how women are supposed to be is uh not not great so i i you know i can only imagine that this was not the only text that refers to women like that i'm not sure how old this book is i know it is i'm looking at it right now i have it actually right next to me i know it's it's pretty old um not the oldest book ever but enough where women are very much looked at as objects who don't really have minds of their own. Oh yeah. And (laughs) so he was, he was a 19th century French writer and unbelievably influential in the whole 20th century development of magic and occultism. He was, as far as I know, the first person who made the connection between the tarot and the Kabbalah. So he was really influential, but it, has it was absolutely a very common belief that well there are all sorts of interesting beliefs about women and the nature of women and their relationship to men and you know the degrees to which women were actually um, derivative of men like you know in the the Adam and Eve story to or you know the degree to which uh, women can be at all rational beings, but it's it was also believed that women were more susceptible to things like being able to contact spirits, and that women were inherently more spiritual because we are 
more emotional and more irrational and all of those kind of horrible sexist things. At the same time, this was something that for some people predisposed women to things like certainly spiritualism, but also certain types of, of magic, which I've always found kind of, kind of interesting, um, you know, that women were, were seen as these very, you know, kind of passive beings, uh, yet were still denied having the, the kind of profile within occult culture that, that they could have. We're actually going back to this topic of spiritualism. From what I understand, that really was rooted from women mm -hmm. with the training of that. And I, I meant to say this earlier, but spiritualism, it's funny because when I got into witchcraft and magic and everything, I hadn't really heard of it. And when I first heard of it, I was like, oh, how common is this? And then I found out that the woman from Long Island Medium, the show on TLC, Teresa Caputo, is apparently a spiritualist. So that's how she, I suppose, got her training and medianship. I think there's probably some predisposition in this as well but apparently that's where uh she got her skills from if anybody is interested in spiritualism i have never been to a spiritualism class or a church or anything like that but i have heard that there's a book called how to meet and work with spirit guides by ted andrews that is useful for people who are interested in this topic i own the book i haven't read it but it's sitting on my bookshelf currently collecting dust but one of these days i am going to get to it yeah there are actually a couple of spiritualist communities in the U.S. So Lilydale in New York is a longstanding spiritualist community, and Casadega in Florida is another one. And I've been to Casadega. I'm going to be going to Lilydale in 2023, so I'm super excited about that. And they're, they're historical communities where you can go and you can get readings. I've been to spiritualist I've been to spiritualist services and they're, they're really wonderful and they're very moving for a lot of people. It's, it's really it, the, the skills, the, the skills of, of mediumship and the importance of mediumship. I know that a lot of, of the occult world, certainly back in the day, thought, oh, this is, this is not very transcendental. This is, this is, you know, this is, this is very base, but it, the, the techniques the, the, the techniques of kind of going into trance, altered states of consciousness, being being receptive in that way is something that you find throughout esoteric practice. You certainly find it in witchcraft, absolutely. Yeah, they have a service near me. Um, I think it's about 45 minutes or so away, but I've been really interested in attending. So one of these days, I'm going to make it over there. <laughs> it's definitely worth it. It's definitely worth it. And I, I would think that, you, that uh, you'd find the people very, very kind. I have heard that. Yeah. I know some of them do look at it a little bit more from a Christian based background. I have heard of a crazy story of a mutual friend of ours who has gone to a spiritualist church before. He he said that he's had uh, he's had some experiences with uh, the women involved in spiritualism. And yeah, it was just a funny story. Maybe one of these days I'll bring him on so we could talk about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, it's always, always good for a good story. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we're going to continue our conversation, so stay tuned. Absolutely. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, welcome back. So uh, now that we've come back, I think it'd be kind of an interesting topic to talk about the idea of the way that the goddess was manifested in the occult movements, maybe of like the late 19th and 20th century. Um, you know, I think we had talked about previously before this episode how, or before this recording, is how there was an interest in this divine feminine, but this was shown more of like an ex, you know, like a fashion that wasn't really great to women. You know, and this is this is such a wonderfully complicated topic, and I want to make sure that that before we finish out, that you know, we get to mention a little bit more about witchcraft and the role of women in witchcraft and also some of the other really incredible uh, occultists and and witches who kind of made it a lot more commonplace for women to be in positions of power but i think that there is a distinction between um women's roles and social roles in occult culture and the ideas of the divine feminine, which are really unbelievably complicated in my view. Uh, I'd like to also kind of have a shout out to Ronald Hutton's new books, Queen, new book, Queens of the Wild. Have I you didn't, read it I didn't even know he had a new book coming out. He did. It's, it's already out. Ooh. And uh, what it does is it, it, it looks at kind of the, the very unusual sort of this the whole and i mean whole like space for the divine feminine that was there in christian europe and particularly christian britain and the way in which even though there wasn't necessarily any evidence of a of organized witchcraft of goddess worship as we would understand it today that there was still this need for a divine feminine, which emerged in various places. And so he talks about some of the different goddesses that were of interest to people and kind of showed up in things like popular theater and literature. One of them, of course, was a, was a nature goddess because I, and I think what, what, what professor Hutton is trying to get at is that, there is a need. There is, there is a hunger for, for goddesses. We certainly still see them worldwide. You know, Buddhist traditions have goddesses. African traditions have goddesses. Uh, there, you know, there, there are goddesses all over the place. But when we look at what happened to Christian Europe in particular, there's this, this space there. And so Ronald is talking about that. And I think it's directly relevant to what happens in the late 19th century and early 20th century, as we start seeing self-conscious religious movements 
that privilege a divine feminine, which is where the OTO comes in, which is where witchcraft comes in, in all of its various forms, where there it's it's important. Also, you know, the esoteric readings of, of the Kabbalah, the way that people were looking at even alchemy, and in these traditions, in, in, in the early 20th century, people were looking at alchemical texts and seeing that there were alchemical commentators who were were looking at this idea of the divine feminine and saying, you know, the philosopher's stone, you know, that that enlightenment, that eternal life. Well, you're not going to get that man person without having some sort of connection with the divine feminine. <laughs> that's you actually know? really, that's an interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was happening. So we get that going on in the Renaissance, right? And then esoteric readings of the Kabbalah as they were starting to come in, transfer out of Jewish and Christian thought and become uh, much more occult and picked up by esoteric communities. And this idea of, of the divine feminine, the divine masculine kind of working together in, in a, um, in the sense of, of, of deity, not just having, having those, those two elements. So we start seeing this, the importance of that concept emerging in 20th century. And I, I specialize, you know, I talk about 20th century a lot, mostly because that's where the media is, right? You know, it's at that point that, that people are publishing more about it. So more people are reading about it, which is one of the reasons why we have this incredible spread, this incredible occult revival then like we do now. So these ideas are kind of spreading like wildfire during that period for people who are interested in, in the occult. And we start seeing this kind of spread of ideas about what what a goddess might look like. It was already there. It, like the, the ideas of, of a goddess, either an earth goddess or a moon goddess, they're already there in poetry. They're already there in popular culture. But then like the Golden Dawn had, there were, there were some goddesses in their, in their canon and in their practice, but we don't get the, the privileging of the divine feminine in the same way that we do in say Salemic tradition and in, in witchcraft, which I think there's something about the way that those, that the goddess is seen there, which is about the divinity of the material, the divinity of who we are. It's the idea of, of not transcendent divinity but that the goddess is present. The goddess is that everything is sacred, that everything is holy. I think that's really important to how a lot of people understand the goddess, not as, as this being that you can't reach, but in fact, this being that is all around you and that is also you. So gosh, I, okay. So I have two things that came up during that. The, the first is I know in some, so I was raised Catholic and I was more of like the Hispanic Catholic area. And I can't speak for everybody with this, but I know that I have experienced a lot of people viewing um, the Virgin Mary almost at a goddess level because, you know, she was the mother of Jesus and, and everything. And there's a lot of direction towards looking at her in that light. But there's also a lot of people who will never say that because of the connotations of, no, I mean, God, he's the, he's the head on show. It's all about him. 
but you know Mary's also great <laughs> so there's kind of like that level of what they would actually say versus what they practiced and on that note what the last thing you just said of communicating with the divine and the goddess I think that's one of the things I liked about witchcraft the most because when I was raised Catholic when I went to church it always felt like communicating with God was just you know, I was kind of talking to a wall. <laughs> no one was really there versus when I got involved in witchcraft, specifically Wicca um, and following a god and goddess type religion. I felt like I could just pick up the phone and call them. You know, like I felt like I was actually connected to something. And that's not anything I had experienced with my previous religion. And yeah, I don't know that that just reminded me of that. I hadn't thought about that in quite some time. Yeah, I think I think you really characterized it very well. And I think that for me anyway, and when I look at this material, not just as a practitioner, but also as, as a scholar, the idea that, that the goddess and that goddesses are, are not out there transcendent, somebody who you, you can't have a relationship with, but that, that in fact, you know, she's, she's right there. They are right there. And I, I think that's that's a really important distinction. And it, I think it's something that, that we can look at historically to see kind of how that happened and trace trace where we get these, you know, very, very ancient yet also very modern understandings of what the divine feminine means. And I absolutely know, I don't know, I can't speak personally to it, but I know there are, Mary is wildly important as a divine feminine figure and i think a lot of of christians uh, also see the the holy spirit as essentially a feminine force as i think well. i have actually heard of that before but that wasn't anything they ever told me in my church <laughs> that was something i read about outside of outside of the catholic church the the masses that i was uh, attending oh yeah it's definitely it's definitely a thing and it's a way that that some people and certainly people who are you know, reinterpret Christianity in ways that are more comfortable to them will speak of or understand the Holy Spirit as being the, the female part, especially if they're, they're thinking of God as, as non-gendered or as dual gendered, they'll think of, you know, you've got the Holy Spirit as being the, the female part of that entity. Although, Again, I'm I'm also not a specialist. I wasn't I wasn't raised Christian, but it's something that I know exists out there. God, I would just love to uh, sit down with a Catholic pastor of the last Catholic mass I went to and ask him these questions because I could only imagine. I um I went to a Catholic mass not that long ago, uh, the beginning of this year, because my little cousin was getting um, her first communion and she wanted me there, and I was like, of course, and. I didn't realize I had to sit through an entire Catholic mass for the communion. Cause when I got communion as a child, we didn't have to do that. But um, I, I got there and my uncle was like, yeah, we're going to sit through mass. And I'm like, great. <laughs> Cause I was like, why are all these people here? He's like, we're going to mass. And I'm like, Oh, great. Um, and that Catholic priest was uh, talking about some things that I did not agree with. And we, we were exchanging some looks with each other back and forth. Cause we were sitting right in front for, cause we, we were one of the families of the child, like a child getting first communion, you know, so we had one of the first few rows right in front of him and 
<laughs> yeah, I know. If my uh, if my facial expressions had some words to them, I'm sure he heard them. Um, you know, this is not to say that I'm hating on Catholics or anything. It was some of the things he was talking about were very much personal opinion type things about um long story short because i don't want to get too off track here but he was talking about how the people who lived in that area made a certain income level and they were like a higher income and if you made past a certain amount you needed to give all that money to the church and i was like what (laughs) he was talking about how roe versus wade getting overturned was one of the best things ever and that everybody need to go out and vote for that and everyone's opinion on that is their own my opinion is that (laughs) i'm very much pro-choice um but it's the Catholic Church, so that's not necessarily shocking that they're pro-life. Um, he was also talking about weird things like microplastics. And then he had some racist undertones of some of the things he was saying about the people in the community. Um, he, it, it related to the income where he was saying that if you made over a certain amount, you had to give some of your money away because there were people in the community that like had poor life choices that led them to not having a lot of money and it was it was just it was not it was not great it was not a great service i was sitting there like what is happening um after that service my aunt and uncle let me know they were going to change to a different (laughs) catholic church so i'm glad it wasn't just me you know the witch sitting at the first pew being like what is this man talking about my aunt and uncle were like um yeah we're changing to a different church um but that was my last catholic mass experience so sorry did not mean to get completely off topic here but um yes anyway (laughs) back to back to this uh i guess my my whole point is i would love to sit that man down and ask him what he thinks about the holy spirit being female um considering his other things that he had to say at that service i i think there there are it, it would definitely be an interesting conversation uh, I would imagine that for any of your listeners who would who would look that concept up, who would Google it, you'd find a lot of uh, you'd find a lot of information. When we're looking at the kind of the emergence of of the goddess as we or goddesses, you know, I I don't really personally work with a the idea of a single goddess, but that there is a whole range of understandings of even what the divine feminine is. And, you know, that's, that's kind of also, let's be honest, sort of an uncomfortable concept as well, because that puts us into a binary that I'm not particularly comfortable with, but historically, his, historically it's, it, that binary exists. So this, you know, there, there is this really, I think uh, problematic idea of, of the binary that, and, and that, that really has impacted the development of the occult, esoteric, witchcraft. I think it's something that I'm super happy to see being problematized, unpacked, challenged today, both in in people's wider conversations and in their own practice. But historically, this was a huge thing. And the idea that there was a divine masculine with a certain set of traits and that, the, that there was a divine feminine with a certain set of traits and a lot of that idea of the divine feminine was was well first it was kind of put into a, a set of boxes which i personally find really super uncomfortable but but these these ideas and these kind of i think they're false polarities were really informed by these very essentialist ideas of what men 
were at their core being and what women's nature was. And you know, kind of going back to some of that stuff that we were talking about early with being passive, receptive, you know, more able to, to channel more spiritual, closer to the earth, all that stuff that I'm not super comfortable with, but that still reemerges when we look at uh, images of, of the divine feminine of goddesses, you know, we're still getting rid of all of that baggage. But when esoteric Christianity was starting to kind of filter into what became religious, like modern magical religious practice. So Salima, which was seen as a, and still is a separate religious religion from Christianity, witchcraft, which for many people is a separate religion. Uh, not everybody considers that a religion, but for people who do consider witchcraft a religion, they tend to see it as a distinct religion. But as these ideas were coming in, there was this idea that that God was a, a dual charactered God, that there that God and goddess was one, that God was was not was not a single gender, that God was not inherently male, and that God was part male and part female, and even that that Adam was that Adam was not initially male, that the esoteric reading of Adam was that Adam was both male and female. So that before the fall, before the fall of humanity, that that the perfected being on earth, the first perfected human, was actually this kind of hermaphroditic character, was both male and female. And that Adam really meant that. And it was the fall that separated men from women. And that in order to return to this perfected state, that men and women needed to, to join, needed to uh, unify, become one. This is the basis of a lot of early sex magic, that in order to reach that ungendered or dual gendered hermaphroditic state, that that was actually the natural state of humanity. And so from that, we start seeing, when we, we start seeing this idea of the divine feminine being used as a way to talk about balance and about social balance, and that this is important as in society as a redemptive feature, that we need to be focusing on these ideas of, of, of goddess. And that, you know, I've always seen that certainly as we start getting religious paganism, that um, the idea of, of a goddess is a very revolutionary idea that it is something that is meant to challenge social norms in, I think, in Western culture, although I'm not also not comfortable with the idea of a monolithic Western culture. But you know, I think that that there is something that is very revolutionary and very resistant and something that is very challenging about not just having the notion of a divine feminine, but also that women will be in the position to uh, that women can hold positions of power within organizations and within groups like Wicca, where we are working with the divine feminine through through women. I didn't know that story about Adam. I had no idea that that was the original explanation of it. Yeah, that's that's not a, a standard thing. That's something that that 
was uh, kind of, it's one of those interesting lost features of, <laughs> of occult knowledge that was really very prevalent for a lot of people, again, particularly working in esoteric Christianity. But there's a lot of material out there about that. And it influenced a lot of early occultists. And it certainly influenced a lot of early sex magicians uh, in the 20th century. It, it influenced people like Dion Fortune, um, and you know, this idea that that this is this is the perfected the perfected state of humanity, um, yeah. So it's it's a an, an occult Christian concept. A lot of people don't know of of that role in alchemy for women as well, but it's certainly in a lot of early alchemical texts, and not just one, but a number of them. Where you know, if you look at alchemical emblems, which if your audience has not looked at alchemical art from the medieval and Renaissance period. That's some wacky stuff. I absolutely love it. You should check it out. But there's, you know, one of the states of, of alchemical transformation is actually conjunction or union. And it's symbolized by a king and a queen having sex in a, in a vessel. And some of it is, I wouldn't say it's like, by today's standards, super porn, but I mean, that's what's going on there. And the importance of that is that in a number of alchemical texts, that the statement there is that you have to have both elements in order to have a perfected soul, which that's, that's kind of wild in the Renaissance period that, that this was going around, but that continues to be an esoteric concept, which influences all of these other, all of these other features that we, that end up coming into our understanding of, of, of what, what that means, what it means to have a goddess. There are a whole bunch of ways that, that, that emerges, but that's one strand. And it becomes important to to women who are practicing the occult, of course, because I think that certainly for a lot of us who do identify as women and also for, I think, men in general, you know, men uh, or anybody, there, there there's something about the connection to goddess and knowing that you can do that, that you can be a part of that, that is really empowering and really important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see this is definitely an interesting conversation and I can imagine that there might be some listeners kind of wondering about the trans aspect of this. You know, I'm personally of the opinion that it's about your energy and that we are all able to tap into feminine or masculine energies. And if you are looking at opposites, then think it's not as important what body part you have, but that's just my opinion. I know there are people who have opposite opinions of that in the craft. So I guess, what are your thoughts on anybody who might be listening? Who's wondering about like trans aspects of this? I think that we're in a really wonderful period right now, as I said, where we are kind of unpacking and rethinking this idea of the masculine or feminine or that that those ideas as essential and fixed characteristics i think we're calling that into question in a really good and useful way um so you know i know that in in my practice with my partner we don't even we we try to degender those terms as much as we can in our own practice. We don't think of anything that we do within this idea of polarity. Personally, I think the sooner that we can get rid of that, 
the better and start thinking of other ways that we can do that kind of work. However, I will say this. First, that there have obviously always been trans people and trans magicians and trans occultists. There's a lot of gender bending and gender fluidity just as much as there has been gender stereotyping and and essentialism. So that has always been there. Um, but sometimes looking at the past through our eyes today can be a little bit uncomfortable because we do see uh, we do see this kind of interplay between people who are challenging those norms and people who are really strongly reinforcing those norms. And you know, it was really frustrating to me when I was editing this recent collection that, in fact, looking at a lot of the women occultists in the past who, in their own eyes, they were really radical. They were doing this super radical, socially, you know, crazy stuff. But by today's standards, their ideas of gender were horrifically conservative. And I wanted them to be out there like tearing it up. And they weren't. They just weren't. They weren't. Because for them, and I think that this is actually something that we see in some, in, and I know that I've seen this among older, uh, older magical folks, whether they're Wiccan or attached to other esoteric traditions, I think it's important to remember that for a lot of women in particular, the idea of an essential female, I, you know, the, that idea was really important to them because that was the language they were using at the time. And that was empowering. You know, the idea of, a, of an, an essentially female goddess who, you know, was involved in birth and menstruation and all of those things that we're, we're not using that language now. That's not comfortable language for a lot of us. But when we look at that, the role of, of women and, and goddesses in certainly the historical kind of, as we go into the 20th and 21st century, that was super important. That was an important feminist principle that women were using and to have a lot of that turned upside down for them is, is really uncomfortable and it's really hard for them to get their head around because that's what they use to fuel their idea of the divine feminine. And so sometimes when I see some language that's not where I'm coming from or that's kind of hurtful, I have to remember what the history looks like for them. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people are products of their time, regardless if they have, at the time, what would have been seen as radical ideas or things that they were doing, you know, you still kind of have to meet people where they're at and in their current time period, you could say. And, yeah. you know, it's also just a good way to see how we have may maybe have progressed from then as well. And it's wild. I think that this is probably the biggest revolution that, that we've ever had. And it doesn't mean that I ever excuse people from being cruel, insensitive, or thoughtless, but I... I can at least understand the the historical moment that informed where they are right now. People can change. People can do the work. People can choose not to do the work. If you know when when they're confronted with it, they can choose. They can choose not to come along with the rest of us. And I understand that that's that's a thing that happens, and it's it's very very challenging for the present moment. Um, but but these are ideas that when when we are looking back at 
a lot of these women and why they were attracted to the occult, why they were attracted to ideas of the goddess as being something for them that was progressive. Um, we may find a lot of that unbelievably uncomfortable. So a, a woman who I wanted to, to mention, because I kind of told you, actually that I want to do, I want to kind of give some shout outs to some, some women throughout history. There was a wildly, uh, uh, she's just, uh, she's so eccentric. Uh, this woman, this uh, French woman called Maria de Naglauska, who was active in Paris in the 1920s and 30s, I believe. And she was, she identified at least partially as a Satanist. And she was doing these wild sex magic rituals and, or at least she was writing about them. The degree to which they were ever done is not entirely clear. Uh, your listeners should definitely have a look into her work. A lot of it's, it's her rituals are, are available for people to read. They're, they're kind of weird and, and shocking. And she was trying to do this. The, the whole idea behind her 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 spiritual order was that that this was going to be something that uplifted women and ideas of of motherhood in this yet at the same time some of her sex magic rituals involve things that look pretty rapey and awful and i'm looking oh, at this okay. and I'm thinking, I'm thinking okay that's not okay. So I had to get in her head and I'm like, okay, what was she, why would, why did she think that that was going to be liberating? But she had a whole framework for it. One that's super not okay today, but it was really it for her and for her time. It was, she, this is how, this is how she was doing her political feminism. And also for, for people who are interested in, the connection between Satanism and early Satanic thought in the 19th and 20th century. Per Faxnald is a scholar, European scholar, who wrote a book, it's an academic book, called Satanic Feminism. And he outlines the way in which Satan and Satanism was used as a tool for, and a metaphor for women's liberation which is again very interesting but and it sounds crazy it sounds like woo but it's when you look at at how they were understanding these concepts it's not what we would call progressive it makes me think of the story of Lilith and how she was portrayed by some of the churches as being this horrible being but the story was actually quite empowering for women yeah but and she was really villainized and there are, are a whole bunch of young women who today who are really finding a lot of, of empowerment in the story of Lilith. Yeah. I, when I first heard it, I, I was like, oh, what a badass bitch. Like, <laughs> she sounds great. <laughs> yeah. 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 And she's another one of those stories that not like not everybody, not everybody was into, you know, she, she was kind of sidelined and she was in apocryphal texts and, uh, yeah, but she's making she's making her way back and inspiring a whole new generation of young women. Yeah, you know, I think uh, the last time I went to a hotel, I it was either the last time or time before that, but I, I went to a hotel somewhat recently, and they always have the Bible in their nightstands, which. I don't know. Thinking about it now, I'm like, that's, that's an interesting thing that they put it there, but whatever they always, they usually have the Bible inside of the rooms. And 
I said to myself, I was bored one day. I was like, I'm just going to open this and read it. Like, I'm going to read it like a book, the first couple pages, just to see what it says. And when I got to the part with Adam and Eve, Lilith was just not even in this Bible at all. And I'm yeah. like, okay. <laughs> also, reading the beginning of the Bible, it was just crazy. I was like, this person lived for how many years? And they did this? I was like, what? Who? Okay. <laughs> It's like this is just, okay. <laughs> yeah, Lilith is is not in the standard Bible. She's mm-hmm. only she's in. I'm not a biblical scholar, but uh, yeah, she's she's in apocryphal texts. I'm sure some of your readers will know this history better. Uh, yeah, she's not she's not a standard biblical character. You find her in other traditions. You find her predominantly, I believe, in Jewish traditions. Yeah, Jewish traditions for sure. All right. Well, we're getting uh, close to the end of the episode. Is there anybody that we have not mentioned that you would like to mention to the listeners to maybe check out if we haven't talked about them yet? Sure. Well, I'm glad that we got to talk about um, Maria de Naglauska because she was wild. Um, another person who, and I, I think we focus so much on British occultism because, well, it's interesting. It was vibrant. Um and, you know, I, I think a lot of people feel a kind of romantic connection to a lot of British material, but there was a whole American occult, like series, a whole bunch of different American occult uh, manifestations and movements. And my friend Krista Shusko, who is a scholar currently living in Sweden, um, but she's an American and an Americanist, and she has been writing about this woman called Eleanor Kirk who was another one of those women, like I was talking about earlier with Madeleine Montalban, who uh, she wrote for newspapers. She wrote for newspapers, she wrote books, and she was an early astrologer. And she was also interested in kind of magical wellness, the, the, the kind of, you know, we think of wellness culture, you know, people kind of dump on it. But that's something that has a very long pedigree, certainly in the United States, and it was always connected with, with kind of mystical ideas about about beauty and the relationship between beauty and health and spiritual development. Uh, again, she she did astrology. She had an astrology column. Eleanor Kirk, check her out. Uh, she was really really influential and very forgotten about. So yeah, check her out. Of course. I would assume that a lot of your listeners know about the the kind of heavyweight, heavy hitter, Dion Fortune, who was a British occultist. She had an offshoot of the Golden Dawn, the Society of Inner Light, still active today. She was responsible for a lot of ideas with that kind of ended up seeding paganism and initiatory witchcraft with the sea priestess, Goatfoot God. Um, very important novels. Uh, content warning about some heavy racism. She was racist and not even going to excuse it as a product of her day because, oh, it's just hideous. But Dionne Fortune is still very influential and um, important important to know about. Of course, I'm going to shout out to my girl, Ethel Colhoun, who was a surrealist artist and occultist. I think one of the most amazing magical minds of the 20th century. Um, also, Steffi Grant, who was married to Kenneth Grant. A lot of people know about Kenneth Grant and his work with the Typhonian OTO, but his wife, Steffi Grant, was an artist. 
and she was was uh, pretty amazing. Also, if you're into Salima, uh, you've probably heard of Jack Parsons. He's you know gets a lot of play. I think he was way more boring than his wife Cameron, who was a uh, Los Angeles-based, California-based artist, uh, occultist. A lot of newfound work coming out on her. So definitely look into Cameron. I think she was a complete wild badass. And I just absolutely love her. So those are just some names that that you can, there, there are so many out there. But, you know, do a search. Have a look at, at women in alchemy. Have a look at, at cunning women, uh, cunning folk, and try to find some of the women out there who were, who were doing magic. You know, I, I, the, the names are out there. The stories are out there. And it's so easy when you're interested in the histories of, of the occult and, and esotericism and witchcraft to come, uh, you know, to come across the names of, of the great men. You know, I'm a gardenerian. We're named after a dude, but it's not like there weren't women who were as or if not more so instrumental in shaping the tradition than the person who it's named after. So when you're, when you're doing a search, when you're reading histories, when you're getting histories that are dominated by men, stop, have a breath, say, hmm, I wonder, I wonder where the women are. And don't think, oh, well, you know, it's not in this book. So clearly there are no women. There were women. Be rest assured, there were women. Even if we don't know their names, even if we don't know what they did or they wrote, just at least comfort yourself in knowing that they were absolutely out there and try to find some. I love that. It's very sound advice to keep in mind the women that probably influenced that book. One more question for you. So it's okay. something I ask everybody at the end of the episode. I'm going to spring it on you. If you had one piece of advice for a beginner, doesn't have to be related to anything we talked about or could be, what would you say? My one piece of advice for a beginner would be to think about what you want out of your magic. Think about what it means to you to have a magical life. What does it mean for everything in your life to be part of your own magical process? Don't separate the mundane from the magical because it's all magical and find out what that means to you. And of course, use every ounce of critical thinking and ask questions that you possibly can. That was two pieces of advice, but I hope that's all right. Oh, no, that's that's fantastic. I think that actually applies to everybody. I was listening to that like, I should write this down for myself. <laughs> no, fantastic advice. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on the episode and sharing your knowledge. This has been so awesome just listening to you talk about the history and how women were viewed. And, you know, the, this has just been really great. I've loved what this has emerged into. And... Yeah, I'm super excited to hear what people have to say about this one. I think that this was uh, great just to go through the history because I don't really hear people talking about the history to this extent that often. And it's nice to be able to have some reference points to think about. Thank you so much. It's, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground and I mean, it's a big topic. You know, it's, it's a big topic with a lot of dimensions. And, you know, in fact, we didn't even really get into witchcraft and modern witchcraft today but i think we laid the groundwork for that i think that that you know that's that's maybe the next part of the story is is how women emerge in that tradition as as leaders 
now. But I think I, I, I'm hoping that your, your audience enjoys it. And uh, it's been really great to spend this time with you. Oh my gosh, same to you. And you know, you are welcome back anytime. So if we want to do a part two of the witchcraft aspect a little bit deeper, you are welcome anytime to come on to talk about that. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it a hundred percent. So awesome. Cool. Well, so for anybody who wants to get in contact with you, do you have any social media information you could share? Sure. So I am Amy Hale 93, pretty much wherever I am on social media. So Instagram and Twitter for, you know, for as long as Twitter hangs in there. Uh, I'm Amy Hale on, on yes, Instagram, Twitter, um, also Facebook. Um, and my website is amyhale.me. So you can find me there. Also, I have a medium. I'm I have some medium stuff at Amy Hale 93, which is relevant to paganism. That's where I do some of my paganism and, and politics stuff, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Awesome. And if anybody is interested in getting in contact with me, as Amy said, as long as uh, Twitter's still around, I am on Twitter at Seek Witchcraft, Instagram at Seeking Witchcraft, Facebook at Seeking Witchcraft Podcast. There is a Facebook group for the podcast called Witches Seeking Witchcraft, and I'm also on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash Seeking Witchcraft. Am, am I allowed to shout out to Todd and Roxanne? Oh, absolutely. Just shouting out to Todd and Roxanne. Love you guys. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. This has been such a delight to have you and can't wait to see where we go from here. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ashley. No problem. Have a good one, everyone. Bye. Bye.